Hey folks, the Lord be with y'all. Glad to be with you in this special episode and series of And Also With Y'all. The only rhyme or reason, the only purpose of this podcast is to nurture connection, whether real or just emotionally or just taking comfort in hearing our own stories and the stories and voices of others. Whether you identify as a young adult or not, we seek to connect you and help you enter the lives of these 18 and 30-something-year-olds as we connect through the love of Jesus Christ and the Spirit working within and between us as we navigate life right now. We thought we'd pause with the regular pace to check in with young adults in different stages of life to see how they're doing amidst shelter-at-home orders and the pandemic. In these episodes, Eliza Brinkley will be co-hosting. Eliza lives and works in Raleigh, North Carolina as a school teacher, but she's also the digital missioner for the Episcopal Church in North Carolina, and she works closely with the Raleigh area Episcopal Campus and Young Adult Ministries. In this episode, Eliza offers a meditation and reflection on what life has been like for her lately. So sit back, relax, and without further ado, here's Eliza. Hello, everyone. My name is Eliza Brinkley. I'm the Digital Evangelist for the Young Episcopal Adult Hub, or YAH, a program of the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina for young adults. Welcome to the first episode in and also with y'all's special podcast series, Distancing Diaries. This series focuses on the different experiences of young adults in the diocese during this time of coronavirus. Specifically, the young adults we're featuring in this series are sharing with us how their lives have been changed and challenged by the global pandemic so far and how they are making sense of those changes and challenges through their faith. For this first episode, I'm going to be reading to you a meditation that I wrote on one of my own spiritual journeys that I've been walking through during this time. I hope you enjoy it, and please let other young adults you know who might be interested in checking out this podcast and other awesome resources to download the Yeah app. Just go to the App Store on any smartphone and search Yeah and See to find us. by saying that I'm quite fortunate. During this scary time of coronavirus, I've had the luxury of having little to worry about compared to so many. I'm very lucky to still have a paycheck, to be young and healthy, to have a family that is healthy and has the means to take care of themselves. But one of the biggest luxuries I have right now is time. As a high school English teacher in North Carolina, we're still expected to work and deliver instruction as best we can online but as we neither have the capacity to teach or work one-on-one with students in the classroom, I found myself with less work than usual. It's important to note that not every teacher has had the same experience. 
For some, the workload has increased since the transition to online learning, especially for those who have children of their own or are expected to go above and beyond, such as videoing themselves teaching every day. So what am I doing with all of this newfound time that I would otherwise be spending teaching or planning or grading? Suddenly I have plenty of time to reflect and I've been reflecting a lot on this question of who am I in this new normal? If restaurants and churches and centers for community were open and social distancing wasn't necessary, I'd probably be finding plenty of activities to do. As it is, it seems like a whole new virtual world of recreation and socialization has emerged just in the past few weeks. But even though I'm grateful for these opportunities to connect and plan on continuing to take advantage of them, I found that even having six Zoom calls scheduled in a row doesn't always manage to stave off feelings of loneliness. I'm 26 and unmarried with no children. As much as I love kids, I have to say, I'm not exactly mad that I don't have children of my own right now. Teaching can be fun and rewarding, but the idea of having to homeschool and be with kids 24-7, even if they were mine, sounds exhausting. And I give full props to those parents across the country and around the world who are managing to do this. Yet, as much as I don't envy their position and am thankful for the ability to spend the majority of my time how I want, being on your own can be pretty lonely sometimes. Even for someone like me who has an active social life, sometimes I really long for a partner. Finding someone in 2020 isn't exactly a piece of cake to begin with. In the midst of coronavirus, it's even more challenging, if not impossible. I'm going to take a wild guess that for most single people, dating brings out some of the worst feelings of insecurity a person can experience. I know that for me personally, it has sometimes felt that way. The more dates that don't pan out start to mess with my self-esteem. I start to wonder, what's wrong with me? Am I not attractive enough? I went through a phase in college when I was quite slim, but I've since gone up a few sizes. Am I not successful enough? I like to think that I've managed to make a decent teacher, but I've never written that novel I thought I would have at least gotten through part of by now. After scanning through these possible deficiencies in my head, I can't help but feel decidedly less than, like some kind of imposter. One Saturday in mid-March, just as sit-in restaurants, schools, and offices had shut their doors in response to the increased spreading of the virus, I was sitting on my couch in my apartment crying, eating pizza, and binge-watching the TV comedy series Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which, by the way, is a highly entertaining feel-good show in case you need something new to watch. Though I'm generally content with who I am and where I am in my life, I was feeling particularly down on myself that day. I had recently experienced more disappointment in my love life, felt bloated and lethargic from eating too much pizza. I was mad at myself that I hadn't made it off the couch that day to exercise or write or grade anything. I just felt all around miserable. I am the least convinced of my self-worth when I feel that I am lacking in one of the following areas, professional or artistic success, physical attractiveness, or acceptance by others. Whether it's from a romantic prospect, a potential friend, or someone I'm hoping will be impressed by my work or by what I have to say. It's particularly rough when I experience a dearth in all three. And yet some of those really down moments have also been moments when my despair has actually been a means for some much needed self-reflection. That Saturday in mid-March was one of those moments. That Saturday, I had the time. When I felt down on myself in the past, I've tended to indulge in the suckiness of it. 
I'm so frustrated with whatever the situation is and my own inability to have avoided it or make it better that I end up just wallowing. Eventually, something happens, someone affirms me in some way, or I manage to accomplish something after all, and my ego is stroked and I feel on top of the world again, or at least promisingly part of the way there. Yet I've noticed as I grow older that even in moments when I feel that there is nothing I have to show for myself, when I feel pathetic and unlovable, there is something inside that whispers to me, almost sarcastically, oh come on, you know that you're worthy. It's a quiet voice, but it's definitely there. I'm not sure why it's only as I've gotten older that I've become more aware of it. Maybe it's because I've failed in life enough by now that I know that my failures don't define me. Maybe it's because I've lived long enough now that I've witnessed enough vulnerabilities in other people. People who I had originally assumed harbored few insecurities, if any. I don't know why, but when I was laying on the couch that Saturday afternoon, instead of wallowing, I heard this little voice whispering, you know you're worthy. And it made me curious, curious to go beyond the voice, to really examine its roots. In the process, I began to sense, or perhaps was reminded of the fact that deep within me lived a truer, more permanent, more real source of my worth than from any success I'd ever had in my job or any person who told me I looked good. I'm fairly certain that this truer, more permanent, more real source of self-worth that I tapped into that day, if not for the very first time, for the first time in a long time, lives in all of us. I'm sure many people of all faiths and cultures have discovered this and probably all have different names for it. I like to imagine that this source of self-worth is like a tree that is hundreds of years old with a trunk divided into two thick branches. The first branch represents the simple fact that we are human, which means that we were created by God, which means that we have a kind of permanent value. The second branch has to do with our individual uniqueness, which makes us different from others. I don't know that I believe that these things that make us different are gifts or talents or even character traits. Gifts, talents, and character traits imply doing something, performing in some way that generates some sort of measurable result. Instead, I wonder if maybe these features of ourselves that make us all unique beings that give each person value are about what a person is drawn to, what makes them excited, joyful, in awe. In essence, what makes them feel the most alive. I've discovered that I feel very alive when I experience moments of deep interpersonal connection. I love that feeling you get when you have a heart-to-heart with a friend, sometimes a whole group, and you just know that you are totally 100% in sync with each other in whatever it is you're talking about. At the risk of sounding corny, it's almost magical to me. Others may feel particularly alive in other contexts, when listening to a gorgeous piece of music, when seeing that a person or plant or animal is nourished or comforted in some way, or in somehow rejoining one's mind and body to the elements of nature. Everyone, I think, yearns for and is revived by human connection and love. Feeling passionate about any one of these things, though, could be a clue to a core identifying feature of a person which gives them a particular shape and uniqueness, which in turn gives them beauty and value. So if this two-branched, deep-seated worth is the truest, most permanent, most real source of worth there is, what we have to conclude then is that the true worth of a human is less based on what they accomplish or what they do, rather than what they are. 
I'm not going to be absolutist and say that someone's worth isn't based at all on what one does or doesn't do because I'm not sure that such a simple statement can be made and I'm not a philosopher or a theologian. But what I will say is that I have a strong hunch that God cares more about the fact that I am God's creation, unique in my makeup, than whether my acne goes away, whether I manage to write anything that's any good, or whether I ever get married. As it turns out, there's a term in the Christian tradition for what I believe is more or less the same thing as what I've been calling this deep source of worth. Thomas Merton, an American Trappist monk, spoke often of this thing called the true self. The idea of the true self is that it is the version of ourselves that God has created. The true self, in my understanding of it, refers in some sense to the two branches of worth that I've already described. One is the fact that we are simply human, which means that we have all of the goodness, wickedness, strangeness, and frailty that are ascribed to humanity and that make us complex and beautiful and sinners. On the other hand, we have those gifts of life from God that makes us feel alive. Each of us having a different combination of these that create both a fundamental sameness and a fundamental difference between us. The false self, on the other hand, is the self that has been constructed by the world. The false self, sometimes called the small self, tends to be the identities you wear or the possessions you have that the world values. Your job, your income, your GPA, your body shape and size, the color of your hair, your clothes, your house, etc. Sometimes the false self can emerge simply in how we present ourselves to other people. It can be a sort of face-saving shield that we use to mask our true selves from one another. The next part may surprise you. Sometimes inhabiting our false selves is necessary and even healthy. I have a colleague, another teacher at the school where I work, who will often remark on how different her teaching self is from her real self. It's not that how she acts in the classroom is completely different from how she acts around her family and friends, but she recognizes that she has to tweak her behavior in different ways to do her job effectively. And if you think about it, most jobs are like this. We're like play actors. We get out of bed and don our work clothes, whatever those may be. Often what we wear during the week is a signifier of the line of work we're in. And so the act of getting dressed for work becomes almost like putting on an identity. Teacher, nurse, plumber, mechanic, building supplier, social media director. An identity that we will then shed when we return home in the evening, both physically and mentally. But we do need to put on these identities on a regular basis. It's part of contributing to a functioning society. So it's not that all ways of inhabiting our false selves are bad. The problem begins when we start to live in our false selves so much that we forget our true selves. We may start out with some knowledge of having a true self that goes much deeper than our title as an insurance salesperson. But if we spend more time thinking about ourselves in terms of our insurance salesperson identity, or the hot person or average-looking person identity, or the even more innocuous-sounding social justice activist identity or math whiz identity, the scary thing is that we, even in our own bodies, start to think of ourselves only in terms of these surface-level identities. We forget who we truly are and where our true worth resides. I have a friend whose living situation is what he calls alternative, which is basically code for he lives in a small cabin he built with his own hands that is located quite literally off the beaten path. He has no septic system and he bathes in an outdoor shower with water he heats from a makeshift solar panel. 
My friend is not delusional. He knows that the way he lives is not the norm for someone of his socioeconomic class in the Western world. And yet, when we recently sat on his porch one afternoon overlooking his acres and acres of wooded land, he told me that purchasing the property and building his house was the best decision he'd ever made. His confidence that this was the way he was called to live was inspiring. It struck me that at some point in his life, or perhaps more gradually over the course of time, my friend discovered some part of his true self, whether or not he was able to fully articulate what it was, and made the decision to live into it, as different and risky way of living as it might have seemed. I was talking to my dad once on the phone about something going on in my personal life. I can't remember what it was about, honestly, a relationship of some sort, probably. But I remember that I said something like, I don't want to pretend to be anyone I'm not. And I remember my dad saying something like, it's not that you don't want to be who you're not. It's that you can't actually be anyone else. Choosing to live into your true self isn't always easy. We often try to put on an identity that may have some connection to our true selves, but that isn't fully honest. We're challenged to block out the noise of the world that pressures us to be a certain way and try to awaken our partially hidden true selves, that innermost indwelling at our cores. It can take work and intention, and the reward may not always be immediately clear. But the truth is, as my dad reminded me, while we may think we have a choice to be who we want to be, in some sense, we really don't. In a way, we have no choice but to give into our true selves. Because eventually, our false selves will fail us. Maybe it's that we've managed to pretend to be someone else for a while, but we're exhausted and we can't do it anymore. Maybe we were excelling at our work, but one day we make a mistake that takes us several steps back. Maybe we get shut down or dismissed by someone whose approval or love we thought we had and then painfully realized we didn't. If we place all our sense of self-worth and identity in our false selves, we have no foundation to land on when our false selves inevitably crumble. And yet in that great twist of irony in which God enters our lives through our broken places, maybe it is in these times when our false selves fail us that we also manage to rediscover our true selves, just as I believe I did on my couch that Saturday in mid-March. In our desperate search for something to hold on to, we have nothing left but the stuff at our innermost core. And this is the final layer that I'll add on to this complex notion that I've presented here. And that is the idea, of which I must give credit once again to Thomas Merton, that if that stuff at our innermost core that the world can never take away from us is our true self, then is it perhaps possible that our true selves are actually God? Is it possible that our true selves are that little bit of divine permanence and sacredness that we are all born carrying around in our hearts? One of the things I pledged to do that Saturday afternoon in my newfound free time was to keep digging deep, to discover more of my true self, and to begin to consciously try to live into it more than I had been doing. But how do you figure out what your true self is? If you're like me, you you may already have a feel for what parts of you are true versus false, but it's not always so easy. Certain aspects of people's lives can walk the line between both, after all. Your job as an IT specialist may be rooted in a genuine desire to create, 
which would absolutely qualify as a part of your true self. However, your role as IT specialist is just that, a role and a title that you play at, that has been created by other humans and is not a core part of your heart or mind or body that will never leave you as long as you are you. There are a lot of resources out there on the true and false selves. Just Google it, I promise you'll get inundated with options. Some of these online resources provide wonderful exercises that can help you tap into your true self more deeply. These exercises are probably a lot more sophisticated than the one I have to share, but I created it for myself based on my own thinking. It works for me, and perhaps it will work for you too. The exercise consists simply of making four different lists, each one building off of the last. I recommend getting a journal or a scrap piece of paper with plenty of space, and if you forget all of the steps, don't worry. I'll be sure to provide a link to them in the tagline of the episode. Here are the steps. Step one, list at least five things that you did or experienced in the past week that you felt genuine joy, happiness, or deep satisfaction from. For example, I had lunch with an old school friend. Step two, for each item you listed in number one, reflect on why you enjoyed or were deeply satisfied from this experience. What about it made it so fulfilling? An example is, I enjoyed lunch with my old school friend because she and I had a great discussion about current events. Step three, from each reason you articulated in number two, make an inference as to what each might have to say about your true self. Try to hone in on the core human experience that is at the root of whatever it is that gave you joy. It could be that there are several inferences about your true self that you can arrive at from just one item. Consider using the phrases, this shows that, or this could mean that, and linking each reason from number two to an inference. Enlivened by or feel alive from are also great words to use that will direct your thinking towards your true self. An example is, I enjoyed lunch with my old school friend because she and I had a great discussion about current events. This could mean that I am someone who is enlivened by deep conversations with others and by maintaining relationships with people with whom I can have these deep conversations and that I care deeply about the people and world around me. Step four, last step. Based on your inferences in step four, come up with a list of around five goals of things you can start doing on a regular basis that will help you live more fully into your true self. They can be as specific or broad as you like, but make sure they're directly connected to what you've discovered about your true self in this exercise. An example is, based on the conclusion I came to that I am made to feel alive by maintaining relationships with people I can have deep conversations with, I will make a goal to call one such person once a week. Or, based on my discovery that I care deeply about the people in the world around me, I will make a goal to join a local civic group that will help me to stay informed and show love to others through action and service. I hope that listening to this episode and learning the steps to the list exercise can help guide you in doing two things. One, discovering more of your true self and being able to articulate what some of that true self might be. And two, Setting an intention as to how you will go about living even just a little more into the depths of your true self and perhaps a little less in the outer layers of your false self. In my own attempt to work toward these things, 
I've discovered the possibility of cultivating a really deep-seated sense of peace in who I am, knowing that my true self is the version of me that God has made in his image. I've begun to see my true self as beautiful, as blessed, and as good. I have a stronger belief in my worth as a human being, as God created. And my hope is that you will, in turn, be able to recognize and embrace your true self, and through that, recognize your unconditional worth. Thanks for listening. Well, that's it for this episode. Tune in for the next few episodes for more Distancing Diaries. Thanks, Eliza. So much fun to co-host with you and looking forward to hearing more stories from young adults and how their faith has been impacted by COVID-19. Much love to you all. Grace and peace, friends. Thanks a lot for listening.